This is the Stoppage Time Podcast from WEGL 91.1, giving you the latest on all the big talking points from the Premier League and the Champions League. Hello and welcome to Stoppage Time. I'm your host, Chris Basinger, and joining me in the studio today is Andy Hewling. Andy, how are you? Good, Chris. Uh, had a good weekend. Watched some Auburn football, uh, but on Sunday it wasn't too pretty. I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, much in detail uh, since we are on the Stoppage Time podcast. But yeah, it wasn't a good day for my soccer team, Manchester City. Um, but other than that, had a good weekend. Indeed, we shall talk about that and a quick War Eagle before we move on. And we are also joined by Harrison Schooler. Harrison, how are you? Uh, doing well, doing well. Uh, at the other side of Manchester, there were three points taken. Doesn't matter how they were taken, just that they were taken. Uh, sly rivalry getting into the mix in the studio today. But let's get right into it, shall we? VAR had a seemingly... VAR has seemingly played a hand in half the games this week. So far, there have been 20 penalties awarded, six for handballs in just three weeks of play, with a projected number of penalties given by the end of the season being 292, which would be 186 more than given in any of the past five seasons. Just this week, Neil Mopé's arm hit the ball after a Harry Maguire header, which was reviewed by VAR after the final whistle granting United a penalty to win the game in the 100th minute. Everton were granted a penalty after Luca Dean headed the ball into Joel Ward's arm, which gave the winner them the winner. And Andy Carroll also headed the ball into Eric Dyer's arm in the, in the 93rd, giving them a penalty, which Cal Wilson scored to tie the game late. Harrison, is this new VAR arm handball rule ruining the game, as many pundits are saying? So the idea behind this handball rule is one that Graham Sunis addressed pretty early on Saturday, talking about how this is seemingly what the public would want, more goals. That's what equals excitement to these people. That's what equals excitement to the people that put together this rule. Now I will read the exact wording of this rule for everybody who is not familiar, and it says, a handball penalty will be given if the ball touches a player's hand-slash-arm which has made their body unnaturally bigger. They're also allowed to use discretion in terms of how far the person was away from the ball. Not sure how much they're considering that after the first two weeks of these incidents. But, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit to determine there, and referees are left to decide for themselves what what is unnaturally bigger. Yeah, Andy, do you think that referees should be defining this... uh unnatural position i know that they uh wrote down in their terminology that the arm uh begins at the end of the armpit but it doesn't necessarily define define what an unnatural position is do you think defining it would help or hurt uh the determining of penalties well i think defining it would help because obviously there are times that you know it hits your top arm and it's very controversial because some players think that oh it's not a penalty uh, but really, I would like to see more of like the intent of a penalty. Like, if it's a handball, did he intend to like bring his arm out, or was it just in a natural position? I think they need to kind of bring that uh, clarification to the penalty call because I just think that there are times that players don't mean to do that, and they're trying to just either block with their back, and it just ends up hitting their arm, or. You know, just things like that. But, I mean, sure, if you clarify it, like, hey, top arm, uh, where the shoulder ends at the armpit, that's your considered your shoulder, uh, and then the rest of your arm is considered a handball, I think that would be a great way to make sure that this penalty 
uh, would be called uh, in the right way. Yeah, speaking of uh, clarifying that and making changes to the rules, uh, should the IFAB make a decision to change this rule or to allow referees more uh, more of an ability to determine what is and is not an intentional handball, even though the season has already begun? Or should they stick to uh, what the FA did with VAR last season, not allowing the referees to go and look at the, uh, the pitch side cameras and have this run through the entire season? I think that they will go and review this um, just simply because of how many headlines this is going to grab in the early parts of the season and how, how endangered this is of becoming a bit like Serie A last season where we may reach certain penalty takers reaching double digits um, just simply given off of handballs and things of that nature. Um, I do think they should change it just simply based on the discretion part of how close a certain individual is to the ball when it's played. Because right now I don't think it's it's uh, pretty clear for these referees. Mm-hmm. And uh, question for the crowd: Even though this has put a a bad spotlight on VAR this season, we have seen improvements uh, given that referees are now allowed to use that pitch side monitor. How has your opinion on VAR changed from this year to last year? I'm glad they're checking it, but here's the thing, though. It's like it's kind of with college football, uh, with their review system. I'm glad like it's being used because it, in soccer, you know, they normally never had replay until VAR. They were always doing it just by the human eye, and you always can't trust that because referees make mistakes. They uh, have called things in the past that probably should never have been uh, called because they didn't have replay. They didn't have a second look on a monitor. But at the same time, I do think that it can take away, like I like I talked about earlier, like either the intent of a handball or, uh, you know, maybe it's a penalty call for tripping, but it's really not uh, because they have that second look or maybe, you know, there's a, there's a way to, you know, maybe overturn that. But I think in this, in, in the truth of it all, I think VAR is good, and it's changing uh, the way the English game is played, so I'm glad like they're able to use it. But at the same time, I feel like it's kind of taking away uh, the use of the referee uh, and his decision-making. Uh, if, if he can go back and look that, hey, he made a bad call or he made the correct call. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, yeah, I agree with that. VAR has definitely changed this season. Um with the referees now being allowed to use that pitch side monitor, I think they're making a lot of more right calls. Uh, there was a stigma last year that, oh, if a, if a referee changes his position on a call, the, the players are going to think less of him and uh, everyone else is going to think less of him because he got a decision wrong. No, referees have been getting decisions wrong since the beginning of the game, and now they have an opportunity to correct those decisions and look smarter because of it now that they're able to figure that out and have the game play out the way that it's supposed to be played out based on what happens. Uh, but let's start off uh, on the South Coast. Manchester United visited Brighton on Saturday, beating them 3-2 to two after the handball penalty. Brighton opened the scoring after Lamptey was clipped in the box by Bruno Fernandes, resulting in a penalty, which Neil Mopé converted. Lewis Dunk was then attributed with an own goal, which had ricocheted off Harry Maguire from a Bruno Fernandes free kick. Marcus Rashford put United ahead with a strike in the 55th minute, but Brighton equalized in the 94th with a Solly March handball. 
uh, in a gaping goal. The drama didn't end there because, as we mentioned earlier, United were granted a penalty from a Mope handball, which Fernandez, which Bruno Fernandez converted to win the game. Uh, Harrison, did Manchester United deserve to win this game? Brighton outshot United 18 with 18 shots compared to United 7s, and Brighton had a 2.98 XG to uh, United's 1.58. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that United did not deserve this result. Um, I honestly don't believe they even deserved the draw. They were poor. They had a, a sort of a slow first half. Um, this was easily Pogba's most forgettable performance in a United jersey. I noticed that Squawka Football had tweeted that that was his lowest passing percentage he'd ever had in a Manchester United uniform with 71%. I think they looked vulnerable at the back again. I think in build-up play, it looks like a struggle again because of the lack of independency by both fullbacks. And Brighton looked to exploit that space just in behind Juan Bissaka all day long. They were putting in those crosses, and that's exactly how the equalizer came about. Bruno switched off for maybe half a second. You can question Juan Bissaka's positioning on that as well. And it, it, just, allowed, um, it just allowed Brighton and Sully Marsh to slip in at the back post. Um, I also wanted to note that I just don't think I see some of the players really fit. Again, last week it was a concern from Solskjaer, and some of these guys just aren't clicking, and they need a couple games to really get to top performance, and Pogba is absolutely one of them. Yeah, speaking of Pogba, I have a question written down here. Does Paul Pogba deserve to start next week? Uh, we already saw that United made some changes from last week, taking out uh, Daniel James and Fosu Mensu and replacing them with Mason Greenwood and Juan Basaka. Do you think uh, Oli is going to be a little bit more flexible in taking out uh, one of the star midfielders and putting in someone like uh, Fred or even Mata? Um, or do you think he's going to try and figure out how to use Pogba uh, in tandem with Bruno Fernandez? I think next week they are going to do their absolute best to play Pogba again simply because they're going to be playing Tottenham. And we all know how Tottenham like to sit deep against, or how Mourinho prefers to sit deep against the bigger opponents and try and strike on a, sort of a counterattack. But I think he'll have to play him. I think they need that kind of variable in the team against a team that's going to set up in a low block. They've got to have a guy that can really just pull any kind of pass out of his locker, which he is absolutely capable of on his day. And you've just got to hope that he gets match fit. Maybe he'll get 30 minutes against Brighton this week in the Carabao Cup. I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, I think you absolutely need to play him. You need to get him in rhythm, and you need to get him firing on all cylinders. The sooner, the better. Yeah, how many starters, how many of United starters do you see playing in that game against Brighton this week? Uh, honestly, I think they may not play any starters besides Maguire. Um, Lindelof usually gets a rest in this game. Uh, Brandon Williams will probably get another look. I don't believe they'll want to play Juan Basaka, but at the same time, he was another one that you can sit there and question whether he's match fit enough, so he may get 65 good minutes and pulled off. Um, but mostly, I don't see most of this midfield starting. I certainly don't see any of the front three starting. But um, you'll probably see Dean Henderson in goal. I will say that. You will see the man himself in goal trying to overtake David De Gea. Yes, Moving on, Everton traveled to South London to face Crystal Palace, nicking three points from the Eagles. Dominic Calvert-Lewin opened the scoring in the 10th minute, making it five goals on the season so far for him. Coyote equalized with a thundering header, giving Jordan Pickford absolutely no chance in the net. Everton then scored a penalty through Richarlison after Joel Ward, Joel Ward 
handballed. The win keeps Everton tied for the top of the table, winning their first three games of the season, while Palace suffered their first defeat. Um, Andy, what impact do you think James Rodriguez has made on this Everton team? They've won the first three games of the season, and it's obvious that uh, Angelotti loves utilizing James Rodriguez, considering this is the third team that he's been on with the manager. Uh, What do you think his impact has been this season? I think his midfield play is really what stands out to me, the way he's able to get balls to Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison. I think it's a great connection. You have two guys who are pretty good up front, and I think you know Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, you know, they've been at Everton for uh, quite a few years now, and I think they're starting to find their form uh, under Ancelotti. And I think James now, he's got a goal under his belt after the uh, their game against West Brom. And I think he can only get better from here. And I think Everton has a real chance here to – I don't know if they're going to be top four. It's really too early to call for that. But I, I think they have a chance to have a really good season this year uh, with Ancelotti, James Rodriguez, and these guys that they've had for uh, quite a few years. So Everton is definitely on the rise this year. Uh, but we'll see how they perform against bigger teams once they um, start playing them down the road. Yeah, there was that rumor last season that Barcelona were offering a $100 million bid for Richarlison, uh, which I believe turned out to be quite false. Uh, but it, it seems like him and Calvert-Lewin are really stepping into it now that they have a good right winger to pair themselves with. Uh, Everton, of course, are going to be playing Brighton next week. Uh, do you think that's going to be uh, the, the game that's going to take points for them? They've already beaten Tottenham. They've already beaten um, uh, Crystal Palace in this game, but Brian have looked per- quite solid this season so far. I think that they'll show them new troubles that they haven't faced uh, necessarily this early on in the season. Um, I think that this connection that we're talking about here with James and Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison is absolutely excellent. Richarlison, or excuse me, James is the first player to create more than 10 chances in the league already. Um, and we can't discredit Allen as well. Absolutely fantastic signing. Third most tackles in the league at this point. And of course, heading it all, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, leading goal scorer currently in the league. They've got something built up front. It looks really good. We'll see how their defense withstands against bigger and better opponents. But right now, I mean, it was absolutely excellent to build up to that first goal, the one-touch pass from James, slipping it into Seamus Coleman, who had just made the beautiful run in, in behind. I mean, they finally got that 10 that can really connect play from front to back, and it was just something that Gilfie Sigurdsson could never really get a hold of. Yeah, um, their their opponents, Palace, uh, have also been on a good run so far. Uh, of course, this is the first game that they've dropped points this season, and they're going to go on to play Chelsea next week, and we'll talk about Chelsea in a little bit. But how how does Palace bounce back from this game? How does... Wilfred Zaha get back into the attack? How does Jordan Ayew become that uh, uh, better finisher? How do they bounce back? They've got to shrug this result off. I'm sure it felt like an absolute gut punch to go 2-1 just simply because of this new handball rule. But, I mean, it's just something that Roy Hodgson will have to instill in them that this is just another game. you got to move on to the next one. They're all professionals. I'm sure they're going to be able to dust themselves off and get ready to go again next weekend for uh, a bigger opponent, and uh, they're going to be well set out next week. Absolutely, they are every week under Hodgson, and I think if they just play their game and Eze can get a little more involved, and he was excellent when he was uh, given the ball at times, 
they can really get some. They could probably get a good result against Chelsea. Definitely. And another team that are going to have to shrug off their results after this match week uh, is going to be Chelsea. Chelsea visited the newly promoted West Brom, which surprisingly resulted in one of the strangest games of the weekend. West Brom went up 3-0 before halftime with two goals coming from Callum Robertson and one from Kyle Bartley. Um, Chelsea then came back in the second half with a goal from Mason, with goals from Mason Mount, Callum Hudson-Odoi, and Tammy Abraham. Uh, I think that it is a bit ironic that Frank Lampard goes out and spends hundreds of millions of pounds on these new players who, to his credit, are some of the best players that were on the transfer market. Um, but that the goals in this game come from the three players that he already had last season and the three players that made the biggest impact. Callum Hudson, or, or uh, excuse me, Tammy Abraham uh, was leading the Golden Boot race for a good time. Um, how long do you think until players like Kai Havertz and Timo Werner get comfortable and are able to provide those the same results that Frank was already getting from players that he already had? I think the settling in period becomes when they get healthier and when they can form those relationships up top when you've got players healthy like Hakim Ziyech and Christian Pulisic and they can really start to understand each other's movements and everything like that a lot better. Because right now, I, I don't know if this is where Havertz is going to spend a majority of his time while he plays for Chelsea. I, I wouldn't necessarily see it as a perfect fit if that is the case. Um, I like the front three idea of Ziyech on the right with Pulisic and Werner. Werner running through the middle and Pulisic off the left. And I'm sure they could find a way to fit Havertz into that as well. Um, I thought they played well at times in the second half in this game, but they—I mean, Lampard said it himself. I mean, you just don't account for three individual errors like that the way that it happened. And I will—I will give them credit, and he did as well. He lauded them for their character, and they did show good character after going down three 0 like that. Yeah, uh, the the three goals from West Brom's end did come from. Uh, individual errors on Chelsea's part, uh, but was was the scoreline deserved by the end of the first half? Do you think West Brom gave out the performance that uh, said, "Oh, we can stand in the same league as Chelsea and even almost beat them"? Uh, I thought it was honestly against the run of form that West Brom really came in because I mean they hadn't really put up much. They lost a bad bad game to Everton. Uh, and then coming into this, I mean, it wasn't looking pretty for them, but they seemed to turn things around. And I mean, really, honestly, Chelsea's play was just absolutely poor defensively. They gave up a terrible second goal uh, to make it two nil. And honestly, I think Chelsea's got got problems at the back. But really, like Harrison said, I really think they just need to get the chemistry together with uh, their f- front line because I think. They've got the talent. They went out and bought it. They, I mean, there's a reason they spent 222 million on those players. But you you don't spend 222 million and get automatic results. I think everyone knows that. So it's going to be about you know getting those guys to know their runs, know uh, how each other uh, play, and then once they get that figured out, I think they can be a lot uh, stronger uh, in the front line. Yeah, I think they didn't weather the storm when they had the opportunity to in the first half. I will say that after that first goal that uh, Callum Robinson was scored, that Chelsea missed two opportunities right after that. Timo Werner was hitting the post from a crossball, um, hit the crossbar off a crossball, 
and Tammy Abraham was unable to get a good left foot on a really nice cross towards the back post, and they just have to be clinical in those kinds of moments, and that's something that even with all that money spent, I don't necessarily believe that Werner gives you that clinical finishing ability. As a matter of fact, I might go as far as to say is that their best finisher may not even be Tammy Abraham. It is probably Christian Pulisic. Yeah, uh, Timo Werner did have a few bad misses in the game against Liverpool too, so uh, it seems like this is something that he's just going to have to grow into. Um, Chelsea do face uh, Tottenham in the EFL Cup tomorrow. Uh, do you see that being a close game, given how the two teams played on the weekend? And do you see a lot of the starters of both of those games starting, or is it going to be more of a open game? I think players like Callum Hudson-Odoi will probably get a start. Uh, lots of Chelsea's guys that really just don't get a lot of runouts uh, will probably get a, a start. I don't necessarily think Mourinho will put a high priority on this tournament as well, considering they have to get their things together and head to a playoff match in the Europa League uh, 48 hours afterwards. In so I Israel, I believe. Yes, absolutely. And I do not think Mourinho will put out anything near a strong lineup for this game, simply due to the playoff game on Thursday. Yeah, I favor Chelsea in this game. I think they have the depth that Tottenham doesn't really seem to have, uh, especially in a Carabao Cup game. I feel like they're going to be, both sides are really going to be uh, wanting to play a lot of younger guys or guys who don't get starts uh, very often. It should be a good game. I think, you know, it's two big teams in the Premier League uh, getting to play against each other. So I think it'll be a, an interesting match, but I favor Chelsea because I think they'll have more guys. Uh, off the bench that they can use uh, compared to Tottenham right now. Yes, and moving on, uh, Southampton played at Burnley this weekend. Danny Ying scoring the only goal in the fifth minute. Uh, this is Southampton's first one of the season. Burnley have now lost two so far. Uh, interesting thing about this game, Burnley only had two shots on target, whereas Southampton only had one. Uh, do you think that uh, this is just because of the opponents that they were playing. Southampton, of course, coming off that loss against Tottenham, probably wanting to play a bit more defensively. Burnley, of course, we know as a defensive team. Uh, do you think the forwards, I believe Chris Wood and Danny Ings, are struggling a bit, or is it just more credit to their defense? I think it's credit to the defense. I mean, Burnley, like you said, is they sit back. They don't allow many goals to come through. Southampton, I mean, you know, they're a really good team, but they, I mean, in truth, they are kind of a team that likes to sit back too and hit you on the counterattack. I mean, I've seen a lot of Southampton games where they score because they get the ball and then move forward when they get the chance to, and they either get it to Danny Ings or um, Nathan Redman or any of their other players. But uh, I, I really think Southampton was, was just able to get through this one. Uh, you know, it's really tough to play Burnley, so – one nil result, they'll take it. Yes, and another one nil result from the weekend. Uh, Leeds were at Sheffield United. Patrick Bamford scored the only goal in the 88th minute from a Jack Harrison cross. Sheffield's third loss after this is Sheffield's third loss of the season uh, after a loss against Villa and a loss against Wolves, meaning that they are currently in the relegation zone. Uh, Sheffield, not a strong start. I uh, have to say it might be an unpopular opinion, but not a strong start from Sheffield. Um, 
it's looking more and more like the overlapping center backs isn't really working as well as it did this season. Maybe it was just because of um, it being a new uh, ideology and a new strategy and teams are having to adjust to it. Um, but teams seem to have figured out how Southampton plays. Do you think uh, Southampton are going to have to, or uh, apologies, Sheffield United, do you think Sheffield are going to have to change their tactics or do you think they double down on this and continue training, continue getting better? I'm not sure it's the tactics they should be doubting. It's the personnel up front. I mean, we're talking about a team that was even on goal differential last year with 39 and 39. I mean, they were not bagging them up front regularly. They were honestly getting goals from everywhere. I believe Ollie McBurney may have been their highest goal scorer with six. Maybe it was Lise Mousset. I'm not entirely sure on that. But, I mean, like I said, they just do not have an outright nine. Uh, whether they should have tried to just keep Robinson from going back to West Brom, I don't know. But, yeah, without a real true threat up top to finish the chances that they do create, there are chances created there. They just don't have anyone clinical enough to put them away. And uh, a little side note about Leeds. I think it's safe to say that picking anybody in their front line for fantasy is just a smart move. I do have Bamford in my team, so exactly. I uh, <laughs> I made that trade after the second week. Um, another game on the week: Newcastle traveled to Tottenham on Sunday, seeking to build more momentum. Uh, and Tottenham seeking to build more momentum after their five-two win over Southampton last week, but they were a hand short of winning three points. I know, terrible. Uh, Lucas Moore opened the scoring in the twenty-fifth into an empty net. Um, at the far post after a cross from Harry Kane. But after a controversial penalty, penalty in the 93rd minute, Callum Wilson, who's also on my fantasy team, uh, scored to end it 1-1. Um, does, oh, this was a tight game to begin with, but does Tottenham deserve to come away with three points after this one? Yes, that was... An extremely unfortunate occurrence there. Uh, Dyer, absolutely helpless in that situation. His arms behind his back. Um, it pretty much summed up by Mourinho just walking off the pitch as soon as that ball hits the back of the net from Wilson. And, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, they may, they were robbed this week. But uh, that those are the rules now. And until they're revised, we have to live with results like that. And, you know, United was on the end of an unfortunate call just last week with Lindelof and uh, not using the discretion of how close the ball was to that person. Yeah, Tottenham did have a 3.19 XG and 12 shots on target in this game. Uh, do you think that if Gareth Bale comes into this team whenever he uh, becomes match fit again, does he improve their finishing? And is he going to be a better player than Lucas Mora given his age? The problem with Tottenham is not having Gareth Bale or or even having him in his, the lineup. I think they've got more problems outside of him. I mean, you look at a team that, I mean, you're up 1-0 against Newcastle. I know, you know Newcastle can be a tricky opponent, but with a team that has Harry Kane, Lucas Mora, uh, Son when he's healthy, and, you know, Deli Alley, they should be scoring more goals than just one a match, especially against Newcastle. For a team like Tottenham, I mean, two, three goals I think would be expected uh, 
even with Mourinho, who likes to sit back, I think they can, they're can they well capable of doing it. So, I mean, sure, Gareth Bale is a great player, and I, I, of course they want him back. I mean, he's a great finisher. He's you know world-renowned for being at Real Madrid and then also at Tottenham before going there. And, yeah, I mean, he's going to do well. I think you know he can bring a spark to that front, a line that really needs help. But, I mean, ultimately they need help in the defense. They need help. Uh, you know, they need more midfield people to come add some stuff. They they just need to buy more people, I mean, in truth. I mean, they spent a couple years where they haven't bought anyone in the transfer window. Uh, I think the only way for them to improve is to either sell people off and then buy, go buy people that will fit Mourinho's style. Do you think Dali Alley is going to be one of those people that they sell off? I think they should sell him off. I, I just he hasn't panned out to me how I thought that he would. I mean, sure he had some good years under Pochettino, but I mean with Mourinho around, I just don't think Dali Alley fits that style. He does. He's a more of an attacking player. I think he shows a lot of creativity and style. Whereas I don't think Mourinho plays like that. So I think that they should sell him. Harrison, would Jesse Lingard fit into that Deli Alley role that's going to be empty after they hypothetically sell him? Uh, I would not advise that simply because they've got players that can play in the Jesse Lingard role that I saw while he was at Manchester United, and that role was essentially to be an outlet, a ball carrier, for while they sit in a low block and try and hope that teams don't break them down. He was the guy that they looked to to either start a break or just relieve a little bit of pressure. And uh, I think they've got individuals like that. For example, Giovanni Lo Celso, much, much more talented uh, than Jesse Lingard. But if they were looking to add some depth, maybe maybe they could go for that move. Mm. Leicester City traveled to Manchester City and absolutely dismantled Pep's team. Jamie Vardy scored a hat-trick, two of which being penalties and the other being perhaps the dirtiest goal we'll see all season. Tillemans put in the other penalty, and Madison, or Madison scored a worldie from outside the box. City did open the scoring with a goal from Riyad Mahrez, and Nathan Ake scored in the 84th, mitigating their loss in goal differential. The final score was 5-2, to two, the biggest loss in Pep's career as a manager. Andy, what happened? Well, I mean, I think it's just another example of Manchester City uh, and their defense being exposed again. Um, I think... I'm more disappointed about this loss than the Lyon loss because I think Leicester, obviously they deserve to win the way they played, but City brought a lineup that honestly probably could have won that game by you know two goals to one, maybe three goals to one. But Jamie Vardy and obviously the penalty system, uh, very... I don't know how, what to say, really. I, I, both those were penalties, I mean, in my opinion. I, I think maybe the second one was a little, maybe, but the first one was definitely a penalty. Uh, Walker knocked him over. Uh, shouldn't have. He just was on the wrong side of Vardy. It should not have been where he was. But, yes, Vardy did score probably one of the dirtiest goals of the season, so that, give him credit there for that um, back heel flick. But ultimately, I just think this shows that Guardiola has flaws in the system. And I think a lot of people want to blame the players, but I really blame Guardiola here. Uh, that obviously you've, you've bought Nathan Ake, and he's done pretty decent. I mean, he got a goal, you know, his first goal as a Manchester City player. 
But here's the thing is, I mean, you can blame, oh, City had players hurt. They had one person out to COVID. You know, there's not a, it's not a full lineup. I go back to what I just said earlier. He had a lineup that should win that game against Leicester. I, there's no two ways about it. And I think ultimately playing Sterling at the false nine didn't work. They had to put in Delop uh, eventually, the 17-year-old, who's probably going to start in the Carabao Cup against Burnley. And they just didn't have people like Bernardo Silva. You didn't have uh, Eric, well, Eric Garcia was out there, but you didn't have you know backups on the pitch that could really do anything. Laporte played like the last couple minutes of the game, and he probably should have started, uh, in my opinion, over Garcia. So not really sure what Guardiola did there, but um, I just think ultimately it shows the defense uh, is just another failure uh, in a team that uh, they're playing who likes to counterattack. I think that I'm on the other end of the spectrum here. I am willing to go and blame the players. I think that there hasn't been enough time to structure a good back center back partnership. I think Ake will have to adjust to either Ruben Diaz um, or Laporte. I actually no. I think Ruben Diaz will have to form a relationship with Laporte, and that will be their starting two once he is announced. And Ake will be an excellent third option. I may even provide them an option to play a back three. But I really and truly believe that the problem for them, apart from not having a real number nine, which is an issue in itself, their fullbacks don't offer enough. They simply don't offer enough. I think Kyle Walker offers you energy, but there is no certain quality that he gives you on the ball more so than uh, other fullbacks in the league. He is he's very much so average with his ball-playing ability. Uh, Mendy, you've got size and speed on your side, but awareness, it's not great. On the ball, it's okay. He is a bit clumsy. Um, poor positioning. Um, it's just not It's not all set in stone in the back line. And when you don't have the spine of your team set up, I mean, you just, you're in for it. You're really in for it. And this was a recipe that we saw all last season. If you give Pacey attackers space to run at City, they are absolutely helpless. Yeah, I will say that uh, it appeared that one of the main reasons why Manchester City picked up Kyle Walker from Tottenham in the first place was because of his speed, and we've already s- seen that uh, speed can't really make up for uh, a lot of the defensive uh, shortfalls that City have been facing. Uh, Pep has been criticized in the past, especially with uh, the losses in the Champions League against uh, Lyon and Liverpool and Tottenham recently, that he overprepares for big games and he's willing to change his team's tactics a bit too much to a degree uh, in order to account for the other team uh, and their tactics, which uh, results in errors from his own team. Uh, Andy, do you think that's part of what happened this game? Is that with, with Pep trying to put in all the new players, there was just too much going on the field and the players just didn't click? I don't think particularly for this game, but I will say in the, the Lyon game, that was probably the case that he tried to change tactics. He played different players. He sh- should never have done that. I, I think you've got to put a strong lineup and and do what Manchester City does. I mean, he has a right system, but I do, I do agree that he over-prepares sometimes for big games. And, I, I mean, we've seen that in, like, I feel like the Liverpool games that City have played, uh, even some Manchester derbies where he's changing tactics, changing players. And sure, I mean, not everyone was healthy in this game. But at the same time, like, 
I think one example of him changing is having Eric Garcia start over Laporte, who was healthy to play. I mean, Laporte played the last like 20 to 15 minutes of the game, but he could have been out there on the pitch with Ake, and I think that would have been a better center-back partnership. I'm not saying Eric Garcia doesn't have any talent. He can't play. I mean, he's played uh, for other games that City's had, but I just think Laporte is a better option. And I agree with Harrison that sometimes the fullbacks don't offer a lot. And, I mean, Mendy, I I would have said Zinchenko, honestly, over Mendy. I just think the way Zinchenko's played the last couple of seasons, I would start him over Mendy. So, I mean, sure, Mendy brings pace and power, like Harrison said, but sometimes really clumsy on the ball. And I think Zinchenko uh, is a little bit more clever in his passing, and he, he is a very good defender. So... Yeah, sure. I think blame Guardiola a little bit on uh, his uh, how pre- he prepares. I'm not saying he's not a genius and he doesn't know what he's doing, uh, but I think he could maybe stick to what works instead of trying to change and adapt to what other teams are doing. Yeah, definitely. But this loss can't be con- uh, fully contrib- uh, attributed to uh, City's shortcomings. Leicester did put out quite a performance on the field. Uh Harrison, do you see Vardy making another uh, run, especially with all these penalties that are going to be happening this season? Another run to the Golden Boot, perhaps? Yeah, I honestly, he's ageless. He is absolutely ageless. He's um, his goal scoring record is is in, is phenomenal. Two hundred and fourteen appearances in the Premier League with one hundred and five goals. That's an excellent return. The way that this team is built to feed him balls, and especially in against big teams where they're able to break with a healthy James Madison when he was able to be in the 11 fully. And you've got him, Harvey Barnes, and Iosi Perez, and Jamie Vardy, and all these guys that can go forward. I mean, it's, it's a great recipe for Jamie Vardy to get himself another golden boot. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Lester, of course, are, are pretty high on the table after this game. Uh, continuing their winning ways. Uh, is there a chance at them getting top four, perhaps? The way they played yesterday, absolutely. I mean, if they're doing that to the top six the whole season, I mean, there's a chance that they might be dark horse for the Prim itself. I mean, I'm not saying 5-2 is going to happen every time for Leicester City, but if they're consistent against those little clubs, uh, and then they get the job done and get even a one point or three points off top six and play like that, yeah. I mean, Jamie Vardy is having himself quite a start to the season. And I was really impressed with James Madison and even Castagna uh, on the right wing. I thought all three of those players played really well for Leicester City. Even Harvey Barnes got in on the action. They've got a side that Brendan Rodgers, I mean, I think can really uh, – and really has already had an effect on this team. So I think Leicester, sure, yeah, top four, maybe even uh, prim favorites. Who knows? Yeah, um, a lot of this has to be, you know, attributed to Jamie Vardy. He's been uh, playing phenomenally for the past few seasons. Uh, if Leicester continue this run of game, this run of form, uh, you think that there's a shout maybe in the next um, international break that he might be starting over Harry Kane? From what I have understood in all of my readings, Vardy has not explicitly told the England camp that he is done, 
it's more so that the England camp has turned their head to younger talent, uh, more so Mason Greenwood, Tammy Abraham, Harry Kane, uh, even um, even the likes of Dominic Calvert-Lewin as well. So uh, I think, unfortunately, for England, there will be no more Jamie Vardy for them. But to the benefit of Leicester fans, those are 14 days. You don't have to worry about him pulling up with an injury. Yes, as a Liverpool supporter, I fret every time all of the players fly out of Liverpool uh, and hope every day that they come back healthy. Uh, two teams that are not going to be challenging for the top four this season. Uh, Wolves were at West Ham where the Hammers won a decisive 4-0 victory. Uh, two from Jared Bowen, a Jimenez own goal, unfortunately, from a corner. Uh, and Holler scored a defiant goal in the 93rd minute, perhaps saying that he believes that he be, should be starting uh, with his celebration. Wolves had a, a dismal two shots uh, in this game, um, which is a credit to West Ham's defense. But uh, do you think after this game, West Ham um, takes themselves out of the relegation conversation? I think, again, we watched a West Ham team extremely well organized, absolutely ready with a plan and they executed it to perfection. And, I mean, yes, they benefited from Wolves just being ultimately slow and just not really at it and about it the whole game. And West Ham were able to stay to their structure. I mean, defensively, they looked so solid, and the breaks were so dangerous. Jared Bowen was electric and uh, very, very fierce on his attacks. I I do think that you can you can pretty much say that if they are able to hold on to their best players and there's no movement in the window for them in terms of outgoings in the next five to six days, yeah, I'd say they've got a pretty good shot to just stay in the Premier League, finish mid-table. Does that include a move from Felipe Anderson? I I do believe that if they were to go and look for improvements, which of course they should, they should look to sell players of that quality. Players that just don't seem to have a look into the first team that could go benefit some other club. I don't understand where it's gone wrong for players like Felipe Anderson, but if there is money to be made out there, there are also improvements to be made to West Ham squad, and they should make them. Um, But they should absolutely not take any money for Declan Rice if they want to just have a solid cornerstone to their team for this season. Very true. Aston Villa visited Fulham this week. Uh, the Villains won 3-0 with goals from coming from Jack Grealish, uh, Connor Huran, Horahan, 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 and Tyrone Mings. Got that one right. Uh, interestingly, after the game, uh, Fulham's owner, Tony Khan, who is also a co-owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, apologized by saying, Quote, I promise players in and better efforts from this squad. What do you make of that? I thought that was extremely interesting. I do not believe I've ever seen someone come out as publicly, someone of that stature to a club come out so publicly and really address the problems. Scott Parker really backed him after the game, uh, expressing his concerns about wanting more players coming in. Um, I thought it was extraordinary, and let's see if he can follow up with that. Uh, Just to touch on Villa slightly here, I mean, what a player Jack Grealish is. In 15 minutes, he's absolutely lighting the place up. I mean, uh, first goal was all his, and second goal, he was involved in the buildup with that slithery dribbling he does in the box, just weaving in and out and able to find 
forehand in the middle where it's nicely set up for him. I think they've got some special things going on with the attack. You know, I know they were always vulnerable at the back. They play a little bit of an expansive style. But now that they've got the likes of Bertrand Traore, who is yet to really make an impact in the Premier League, but I believe he will, uh, the former Chelsea youth product, and Ollie Watkins was an excellent buy, as well as Emmy Martinez. And they have really addressed the two issues that everyone was concerned about them with, the goalkeeping position and the striker, with really good quality. I like what they've got going, and I think that it may be less of a struggle in the Premier League this year for them. Yes, and our final game of the match week, Liverpool hosted Arsenal, where uh, they defeated the Gunners 3-1. to uh, Lacazette opened the scoring with an unfortunate error coming from Andy Robertson, playing it back to an offsides Lacazette, who was able just to get enough on the ball to tip it over Allison's outstretched fingers. Uh, Mane then returned the scoring, and Robertson made up for that earlier error by scoring another one. And then in the Premier League debut for Liverpool, uh, Diogo Jada scored uh, late in the game to seal it 3-1. to one. Uh, Does... Yeah, I, I thought this game was very interesting because Arsenal had a very set plan coming into this game. Of course, Arsenal had played Liverpool uh, in uh, the, the Charity Shield um, and had beat them uh, in penalties there and had played at the end of last season uh, and had beat uh, Liverpool um, at the Emirates. Uh, Arsenal came out with the plan that they were going to do man-to-man pressing uh, against the back line, and it worked very well. Uh, there were a lot of long balls that you saw from Virgil, uh, from Allison down the field. Uh, so I would say that part of Arsenal's attacked, attack worked very well, uh, trying to win balls up the field. But I also believe that it was making up for their lack of a midfield. They were forced into that because they knew that they could not play the ball out from the back. Um, how do they address those problems? Do you think... Um, Arteta has a plan of getting more players in or just adjusting his tactics for every game that he's going to be playing this season? I think that we'll see that kind of Arsenal style in bigger games, possibly uh, against City as well. I think that it was more damage control was the the idea behind that. And that's not to mean that they didn't have any attacking intent. I mean, their, their, their plan was pretty clear to me. It looked like they were looking to find someone to drop slightly with a long ball maybe hit someone over the top, but they were always looking to find Aubameyang overlapping or an overlapping run on the right side, someone to be free into space because Liverpool played that high line. But with that midfield, there's just no connector. And there really wasn't a connector for 65 minutes until they brought in Danny Ceballos, who, I mean, it's clear as day. I mean, he is demanding the ball. He is definitely the most trusted figure to make a pass uh, amongst the 11 that was out there today while he was on the field with them. And Arteta was pretty much making just making it clear that Liverpool are just better and that that's the way Arsenal has to play. And if they just execute their plan, they should be in a good position to find a result. But Liverpool are just so quality all over the field that it's it's nearly impossible to just hold a perfect game. Yeah, Lacazette did have two good chances. Uh, one of them was in an offside position and the other one... Uh, it demanded Allison come very far off his line to make the save. I uh, do you think Arsenal's front three 
best front three is Lacazette, Aubameyang, and Nketiah? Or do you think Pepe or someone else fills that role? I think Pepe. I, I really, I just think he is a really, really good player. He brings a lot of prospect for Arsenal. Sure, Nketiah's had a lot of starts, but I just think Pepe has the pace and the ability to play with uh, and with uh, Aubameyang and Lacazette, who are the you know staple two guys up front. But I, I just you know I and Kedia just didn't have a lot for me in this game. I just didn't see uh, anything that he was bringing to the team. Uh, but when Pepe got out there, I just thought that he was able to go up against some of those Liverpool defenders a little bit more competently than Enkedia. And I really think, honestly, Arsenal, uh, if they don't give up those two goals, like it, that, that game could have easily been 1-1, 2-1 Arsenal uh, if they don't give up the uh, re- rebound to, uh, to Andy Robertson and then the headed uh, clearance over to Diego Jada for his first goal of his Liverpool career. Yeah, um, Arsenal did make an interesting decision putting in David Luiz at center back with the idea that he would be playing uh, long balls over the top. We've seen his quality in passes uh, at Chelsea before. Uh, Do you think that was the right decision for Marteta? Yeah, I do believe it was because that was the only way you could truly execute his plan. Uh, If if anything, I mean, holding, you you see quality in holding, but he was stripped off the ball pretty easily today. Um, you've seen that before. I think in that situation, you have to play David Luiz. Maybe his partner could be better. Um, personally, I love Kieran Tierney. I, I liked a lot of what I saw from him at Celtic. There was a time when he could have gone to Manchester United but did not because they believe in Luke Shaw. But I truly believe Arteta has to find a way to keep Saka in this team regularly. I think that in this case, they have a mercurial talent on their hand honestly I really believe that I think that he is with the three most talented young English players in the league being Foden Greenwood and Saka and you've got to find a way to play him he was crucial in their win last week against West Ham and I think you've got to find a way to get him maybe pushed up on that left side and rotate with uh interchange excuse me with Aubameyang late in those games. See if they can form that kind of relationship. A little more central Aubameyang uh, and uh, interchanging there. Yeah, uh, on the other side of the pitch, Liverpool did face uh, a few injuries before this game. Jordan Henderson was out with injury, and uh, so was uh, Thiago. Uh, Allison, thankfully, was still in the side, uh, although there were doubts that he would be able to play um, if Thiago and Henderson are not injured, they probably start this game. How do you see the game being different if they had started over Naby Keita and Genie Wijnaldum? I think there would have been as few sloppy moments as there were from Liverpool. I think there would have been even less, and that says a lot. I think that team would have been playing a nearly 9 out of 10 game if they had both of them healthy. Um, Henderson's awareness on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, it's hard to kind of sum it up how much that means to that team, but his ability to cover the space and see the danger, it's uh, it's incredible. And that's his assignment, and he plays that role so well, and if they had been there, there would have just been a, a bigger element of control to the game, and Arsenal may have looked a, a little more helpless. Yeah, this was also the first game where Firmino really looked like he was getting adjusted. He had some some problems in the last two games really 
uh, feeling out the game and making those passes. Um, do you see him improving on that form throughout the season or staying at that level that he stayed at for the last few? I'm going to do my best here to not pass judgment on any one of those front three because every time I have, they have done something the following weekend to just absolutely blow me away. And I will say that Firmino catches a lot of slack because his performance in that system is is unique to that role. Uh, not many people play that role. It's a totally assignment-based role. There's not a ton of finishing asked for you to do in that role. So when it does come around and you're in that supposed nine kind of position, you're supposed to finish him, and he doesn't. But that's not what he's asked to do. He's always there to supply the inside runs of Mane and Salah. And I absolutely love what he does because he works incredibly hard for the team, especially winning the ball back in good positions. But um, I think he'll continue this run of form just simply because Liverpool look like they are rolling with a lot of confidence right now. Yeah, and at the end of the game, he was subbed out um, for Takumi Minamino, uh, I believe. And we, with the high probability that we are going to see Minamino and Diogo Jota play against Arsenal later in the week uh, in the Carabao Cup, do you see Arteta and Klopp using similar tactics that they did in this game or do they see do you see them adjusting the tactics based off who they're going to be able to be playing in that game I believe Arteta will probably come at it with a bit more of wanting to possess the ball because he is aware that Liverpool will be trying to play a lesser lineup even even with those two names in there they will be playing a lesser lineup at the back and in the midfield I I think Arteta will adjust his plans accordingly Um, I think he'll absolutely want to possess the ball just a bit more and um, we may see a similar result, though, because Liverpool still have that quality to hit them. Yeah, it was definitely a game to watch last season uh, in the Carabao Cup, the 5-5 game, or 5-4 game, maybe, at um, Anfield last year with a Divock Origi uh, 89th-minute goal uh, to seal it for the Reds. Um, but now on to everyone's favorite part of the show, the predictions. Uh, right now, Chris, uh, myself, that's me, uh, has gotten three out of four correct. Harrison has gotten two out of four. And we, we're we going to be honest, we could not remember David's. Um, he knows it, but uh, he'll just have to text me and say who his picks are for this week. But Harrison, let's start for you. You've already picked United, Southampton, Wolves, and Aston Villa. Who are you choosing this week? So this week, I'm putting my faith in Everton to knock off Brighton, and I am putting my faith in Leicester to beat West Ham. Yes. Andy, who are you choosing? I'm going to go with Crystal Palace to beat Chelsea, and then I'm going to say Arsenal beat Sheffield. Mm. Harrison, I'm going to go along with you on this one. I also picked Leicester. Uh, to beat West Ham, even though they had quite a good game against Wolves. Um, I dare say that Leicester had the better game of the weekend uh, against the better opponent. And I'm going to go with Arsenal over Fulham. Uh, I I don't see Fulham improving too much in one week, no matter what the owner says. Um, And Arsenal have been playing pretty solidly so far. I'd like to scratch that, actually. So I'm going to keep Leicester. Okay. 
but I want to take out Everton and Brighton, and I'm going to pick Crystal Palace to beat Chelsea. Okay, I like that. Crystal Palace to beat Chelsea. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stoppage Time. You can follow us on Instagram at stoppagetime91.1 for news, updates, and more. Be sure to tune in next week for another great episode on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts.